Good morning. My name is Anjanette Walshauser, and I'm a part of the teaching team here with Women in the Word. And I am excited this morning to be able to talk to you about Daniel chapter 3. The first question that you guys discussed in your small group was to talk about who throughout history have you been most impressed with as they stood for what they believed was right. Now, I wish that I had been able to go around to each one of your groups just for that question because it fascinates me. Um, I was a history minor, and I love history, and I think the reason why I love history so much is I love to hear the stories of each one of the people who chose to make a stand for what they believed was right. This summer, I read the book, The Help, and saw the movie. I'm sure some of you probably did the same thing. And um, if you didn't, the story is takes place in the 60s in the South, and it follows several women as they walk through life to decide if they're going to take a stand for what they believe is right. Now, I think maybe the reason why it was particularly interesting for me is that I grew up in the South. My whole family is from either Memphis, Tennessee, or Mississippi. My dad actually was even born in Jackson, Mississippi, which is where the um, help took place. That's the setting of it. And so this whole idea of racism was not anything that I was a stranger to. I grew up and it really was all around me. I, um, my family was really too poor to have help per se, but it was something that was just a part of our life that men and women were treated with no dignity simply because of the color of their skin. And there were people who, like Rosa Parks, who chose, everyday people that we don't even know their name, who chose to take a stand and say, this isn't right. You know, I think for me, the reason why um, I thought about this is because I have a memory that was just etched in my mind. When I was a young girl living in Knoxville, Tennessee, and we were going as a family to a University of Tennessee football game. So it was a Saturday afternoon, and the traffic was thick. There were orange flags hanging out from the cars that said, Go Vols. And my brother and I were sitting in the back seat of the car. And we looked up on the um, grassy bank next to the highway. And there were men who were standing there with signs, with their faces covered. It was the KKK. And they had their signs up that, that had words of hatred. And they were shouting things that went against God's word, but that they felt justified to be able to say. And fear rose up within my heart as a young girl because not one of those cars stopped to say what you're saying is wrong. Everybody wanted to get to the football game. And I'll never forget how that made me feel. Later on, as I was in college, I, um, I heard a quote by Edmund Burke that said, All that is necessary for the forces of evil to win in this world is for enough men, good men, to do nothing. Now, we know as believers that God wins in the end. We know that he is victorious. But it's those everyday people in past today and in the future, that will have the courage to stand up for what is right that I believe gives honor to God. 
I think one of the reasons why it's convicting to me is because there are so many times that I don't take a stand for what is right in my own life. I came to Christ when I was 16 years old in high school, and I lived a life that was kind of incognito for Christ. You know, I didn't want to talk too much about my relationship with Jesus because I felt like my my friends who did not profess the name of Christ, I thought they would not want me to be my friend anymore. I thought they would reject me or make fun of me. And so I followed God. I read my Bible, but I really didn't talk about with my friends. And I remember the first time I ever stood for Christ. I was a senior in high school, and it was at the end of the year. We were all gathered in our high school auditorium, and they, um, it was called the Senior Assembly. And so what that basically meant was like a, ta- a talent show. And so you could get up on stage, and you could do whatever you felt like was your talent. Well, there was a group of guys who got up there in a band, and these guys were known for being followers of Christ. I was sitting at the back of the auditorium with all my friends who um, were shouting words of ridicule to these guys as they were singing about how they loved Jesus. And you know how you get those butterflies in your stomach? So I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, I wish I was like them. I wish I had the courage to stand up and to say that I trust Jesus as my Savior. And so when they finished, before I even knew what I was doing, in the sea of all of my friends who were shouting ridiculing words, I stood up and I just started applauding. And I was like, yeah! And they just looked at me. I could see them out of the corner of my eye. I didn't look at them. When I was done applauding, I sat back down. They never said a word to me. I never said a word to them. It was a very small thing, but for me, it was huge. Because on that day, I stood up and I said, I believe what they're saying and me too. Today, that's what we're going to see. In Daniel chapter 3, we're going to see three men who had the courage to stand up for God, even when the world around them was bowing. And they had courage to stand up for God. Why? Because they knew who God was who God still is today, a God that is able, a God who alone is worthy of their praise. Turn with me to Daniel chapter 3. Now Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were three men who, along with Daniel, had been taken captive from from Judah into the Babylonian Empire. And they had been set at the palace in service of the king. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are their Babylonian names. Their Hebrew names were Hananiah, which means God is gracious. Mishael, which means who is like God. And Azariah, God has helped. Now we know these men in in chapter 1 of Daniel have already taken a stand. They wouldn't eat the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. What we're going to get to watch them here is really their story. Those three men. And we're going to see how they're going to respond to King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember last week in chapter 2, King Nebuchadnezzar had been told his dream by Daniel. God had revealed himself to Daniel. And he told him of this dream of a statue that was made of all sorts of different metals. Remember? And the head of the statue was made of gold. Well, Nebuchadnezzar then knows that that head of gold was to represent him and his kingdom. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 1, that King Nebuchadnezzar is going to put up this gold statue. Follow along with me as I begin to read in verse 1. 
The king Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 90 feet high and 9 feet wide. Set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, and magistrates, and all other officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, This is what you were commanded to do, O people, nations, and men of every language. As soon as you hear the sounds of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into the blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of all of this music, the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At the same time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You have issued a decree, O king, that everyone who hears this music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over affairs in the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. So the the sage is set. King Nebuchadnezzar, we don't know how much time has passed between chapter 2 and chapter 3. We don't know if he is, this is the beginning And they're going to fight more battles and he is wanting everybody to come before him and and acknowledge that he is the sovereign power over Babylon. That they are going to bow their will to him. They are going to obey him. They're going to worship. That there will be nothing greater than King Nebuchadnezzar. This could be at the end. He could be celebrating with everyone. But I don't think there's any um, question that the gold image that he has set up is representative of that dream that he had been told. Because he wanted to make sure that his mark was made in history and that everyone knew about it. This statue, 90 feet high. I'm not a spatial person. Maybe some of you, you think 90 feet and you're like, oh, I got it. To me, I was like, 90 feet. I don't know, what is 90 feet? So I asked Rick Neves, wonderful man, look up at the top of here, to the top of the rafters. That's 64 feet high. So another half as tall past the rafters is 90 feet high. That is massive. When we think about idols, I usually think of something a little bit smaller than 90 feet high. (laughs) But I think about these graven images that you can go in and you can see in churches in different places. Something that's man-made, right? Well, the question I want us to look at at the beginning of this is, what are the idols of our heart? Because God says clearly on your verse sheet in chapter 20 of Exodus, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow to them or worship them. That's an obvious idol, but what about the idol of their heart. Because God tells us, actually Jesus says in Luke 6:45, he tells us that a sin is a sin regardless of whether it is on the outside or on the inside. Because what we do 
on the outside comes from our heart. Luke 6.45, the good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. And the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For out of the outflow of his heart, his mouth speaks. Long before your idolatry is obvious to the world around you, it's rooted in your heart. Now, King Nebuchadnezzar bowed before an idol. When, when these three men stood and the rest of the world bowed, the idol of King Nebuchadnezzar's heart was the idol of self-importance. He wanted to be famous. He wanted his name to be revered, to be respected, to be remembered, to be worshipped. What is the idol of self-importance in your own lives? Now, I doubt if anybody here has a 90-foot statue of gold outside their front door. But, in your marriage, have you made it clear that you're the most important person in the relationship? That your wants, your desires, your needs are of the utmost of importance? Or maybe at work, you've made it clear to all the people around you that your agenda is not to be questioned. Your goals are not to have anybody come up against. Or maybe it's in our relationship with God. Maybe you've been praying for something and you feel like those prayers have been unanswered. Whether it's a medical diagnosis that you didn't want to hear. Or the betrayal in your life of somebody that you love. Or maybe it's just a relationship that is tense and you've asked God for restoration and yet it seems like nothing has happened. Are you yelling out at God, why me? I've done this and this and this and this for you, God. Why, why me? Or maybe you're past saying that to God and you just shut your heart down to him. That on the outside you're going through the motions, you're here at Women in the Word and yet your heart has been closed down because you have bowed down before the idol of self-importance. I know that I have. I've gone through struggles in my own life, just as you are. Maybe you are right now. And I have responded to God with anger and depression. But you know, one of the greatest lessons that God has taught me is that I am not the most important. I'm not even the main character in my own life story. God is. It's about his glory, his kingdom, his name, not mine. What about the officials? All those satraps and magistrates, what were they bowing before? You know what? I think pain and death can pretty much motivate anyone. I think they bowed before the idol of fear. Fear is the word that I was looking for you to put on your outline, but kind of in parentheses, maybe you could write the word conformity. Because isn't that really what they were doing? They were bowing to the idol of conforming to the world around them because they were afraid. They were fearful to stand out. And, and this is the idol that I think so many of us deal with on a da daily basis. Because we don't want anybody not to like us. Isn't that why we don't share Christ with our neighbor? Because we're afraid that it might make them feel uncomfortable. And if they feel uncomfortable, then they might reject us. Isn't that the same reason why when somebody around you, whether at work or at home or in your circle of friends, is doing something that is less than full of integrity, we just kind of turn our head and we don't say anything because we don't want them not to like us. 
We worry so much about what others think about us. But God tells us that he doesn't want us to conform to the world. He wants us to live with abandon for him. Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We are not always going to be liked. The world is going to reject us. Jesus tells us that in John 15, 19. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. This is why the world hates you. Often people feel death. Many of us in this room could list that as one of your greatest fears. The thing is, is that God's word addresses that fear. Because we don't have to fear death when we know what comes after death. Having that eternal perspective. John 15, um, or 1 John 5, 13. Talks about how God has written these things so that we can know that he has eternal life. God's word is clear, telling us that by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ, as our savior, and what he did on the cross for us, we can know that we will spend eternity in heaven. And that's what provides an eternal perspective. And I believe that's what allowed these three men to take a stand, is because they knew where their eternal destination was. Look back with me at verse 8 in chapter 3. As we talk about the astrologers and what idol they bow down to. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. That word denounced in Hebrew is a very strong word. Denounced is way too pretty for what denounced really means. It literally means that they wanted to tear apart their limbs and eat their flesh. I'm glad they didn't actually put that in my Bible, but that's what it means. So what the astrologers wanted to do is they wanted to tear apart these three men with their words because they were jealous. They bowed before the idol of jealousy. Jealousy is an interesting thing. Because I think jealousy can take you down a road that you never dreamed that you would be on. It can be defined, jealousy can be defined as resentment against a person enjoying success or advantage. How quick we are when somebody has a position where they're put up front, we can be so quick to give all the imperfections about that person. Why they don't really deserve to have that position, that blessing. Because we're jealous. And you know, I think that if our purpose in life is to bring God glory and to love him with all of our heart and soul and mind, it's really none of our business why God would choose to bless somebody either materially or relationally. Because remember, we're not the main character in our own life story. God is. Jealousy is a slippery slope, and it starts early. I see it in my kids. When they say, well, why, why can't I do this? They got to do this. Or that's not fair. You don't make them do this. 
what I usually say to them is something like this. I do what I believe is best for you. And I do what I believe is best for your brother or for your sister. And not always is what's best for your brother or sister what's best for you. Because I think we do a disservice to our children when we teach them that life is fair by trying to make everything fair in our home. Because there is no place in God's word that says life is fair. But what it does say is that God is good. And that's what we need to be teaching our children. Now, when King Nebuchadnezzar found out about the insubordination of these three Hebrew men, he was furious. This idol of self-importance reigned in his life. We're going to pick up in verse 13 of chapter 3. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But... If you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? He gives them another chance. He can't believe that they would not obey him. Maybe it's that idol of self-importance that, that I talked about that's causing him to give them another chance. Because maybe he wants to prove to the astrologers that he really was right in putting them over in his palace. Either way, whatever his motivation for giving them a second chance, we see the true nature of his heart in those last words where he says, What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? What God? Well, ladies, I can tell you what God, my God, the God of the universe, the God who is able, the God Almighty El Shaddai, El Shaddai is a name that God calls himself in Genesis. It's a name that means God Almighty. See, God made a covenant with a man named Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And he made this covenant saying that I, through your seed, am going to make a great nation. This nation of Israel. But Abraham and his wife Sarah had been infertile for years. They were almost 100 years old. And they thought, how is God going to do that? And so finally they took things into their own hands. And Abraham took his servant Hagar and they produced an heir. And then God came to him in Genesis 17.1. And he said, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. He said, I am the God who can do whatever I want to do. Who are you? To take things into your own hands. You can't walk before me and be blameless. I am God who is able. I am El Shaddai. See, everything had been taken from these three men when they were brought in from, into captivity. But they still knew who God was. They remembered that he was God Almighty. The God who is able. Now in verse 16 through 18 we have these three men's response. And these are some of my favorite verses in the entire Bible. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, 
The God we serve is able to save us from it. He will rescue us from your hand, O King. But even if he does not, we want you to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. When the world bowed around them, these Hebrew three stood in honor of God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego stood on the recognition of the name of God. El Shaddai. They knew his name, the promise of his name, the promise that he is faithful. They stood on the truth that God is sovereign and he is bigger than any furnace that they might come across. They knew their God Almighty. Psalm 147.5 says, Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Jeremiah 32.17, O sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Wherever you are today, don't forget that truth. Nothing is too hard for God, our God who is able. But then in verse 18 comes those words that can cut our faith to the core. But even if he does not. Even if he does not, O king, we still will worship only our God. We will not bow before this golden image. They knew that their God was able. They stood to honor God. But they also knew that just because God is able doesn't mean he's always going to do it. And ladies, that is where those of us who determine, we set our feet, we say, I am going to trust God on this. And then comes the time where we see God answering our prayer in a way that we didn't want him to. And our knees begin to shake, and slowly they buckle, and we begin to kneel before whatever idol is in our heart that causes us to feel safe and secure and in control. It's just like the song that we sang this morning, Blessed Be the Name of the Lord. In a land that is plentiful, when your streams of abundance flow, blessed be your name. When I'm found in a desert place, though I walk in the wilderness, blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, I will turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, still I will say, blessed be your name. When the sun's shining down on me and the world's all as it should be, blessed be your name. But on the road marked with suffering, when there is pain in the offering, still I will say, blessed be the name. But even if he does not, I will still praise my God in heaven. Because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego knew their God and they knew that he had a purpose. They stood on the truth that he had a sovereign plan that would not be swayed by the bowing of the world. God wants what's best for us, even if we don't understand why. Isaiah 55, 8-9 on your verse sheet says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. 
the three Hebrew men stood in honor of God, even when they didn't understand why. They stood on the recognition of the name of God, El Shaddai, God is able. And they stood on determination to walk in faith. They would be obedient, even though they didn't understand what God was doing, and they didn't know how he would intervene. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us we live by faith, not by sight. Can your faith handle being tested by fire? When you've made that determination to stand and you feel your knees buckling and that fire seems to be like licking at your heels, can you handle that? Because it's scary. It's scary when we don't know what comes next. But we serve a God who does. Nothing's a surprise to him. And what he tells us is that when we walk in faith, through those fires, God brings us to a place of abundance. A place of abundance that we never could understand before. Psalm 66, 10 through 12 on your verse sheet. For you, O God, tested us. You refined us like silver. You brought us into prison and laid burdens on, your back, on our backs. You let men ride over our heads. We went through fire and water, but you brought us to a place of abundance. Abundance where we know that God is able. You know, these three men were given a second chance. I don't know if I'd been given a second chance what I would have done. Because I think I might have been quick to justify why I could bow, but I wouldn't really worship. Just on the outside, it would look like I was bowing, but I really inside would still be worshiping God. Or maybe I would say, well, I'll bow just this one time because I know our God is forgiving, and so I'll ask for forgiveness when I do this. But God's word's pretty clear when he tells us in Exodus that you shall have no other gods before me. The first time we rationalize it, and then the second time we do it again, and then the third time, and so on and so on, until we're down a road of compromise that we didn't think we would ever find ourselves on. And maybe you are sitting there today and you're thinking, that's me. I have compromised over and over and over again to where I don't even realize it's compromise anymore. But let me tell you that it's not too late. You may find yourself bowing before whatever idol in your own life gives you comfort, but you can still stand up. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, you can stand up even if the person next to you expects you to continue to bow. What do we do when our faith is being tested by fire? Number one, we can obey God's commands instead of man's expectations. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, and they, they said, we don't need to defend ourselves. Isn't that what we do? We want, if we, don't, we want somebody to like us so badly that we're like, okay, let me just explain to you. If you understood where I was coming from, then you wouldn't be so upset about it. But God doesn't need defending. Their explanation was clear. We live to please God, not to please man. Obey God's commands instead of man's expectations. Number two, believe the truth, not just the facts. Fact, the king said, bow down. Fact, they disobeyed. 
Fact, the furnace was hot. Fact, anybody who was thrown into the furnace would die. Truth, our God is able. Truth, our God is sovereign. And even if he chooses not to deliver us in the way that we expect, we are still assured of our eternal destination when we put our faith in Christ alone. Fact, your life is hard. Fact, there will be times where you will have to stand alone for what you believe. Truth, the same God that was able then is able today. The third thing that we can do when our faith is being tested by fire is to believe God. Don't just believe in God. These three men believed God and took him at his word. Even when their life was threatened, we could call their faith a faith of no matter what. No matter what happens, I am still going to trust God. No matter how alone I feel, how scared I am, I am still going to believe God and take him at my word, at his word. So what happens when the world around you bows and you're still standing? Pick up with me in chapter 3, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude toward them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them in the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, still fully clothed, the tradition was that they would strip them naked and then throw them in. But they were in such a hurry that they kept them fully clothed. They were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Let me just paint a picture of what that furnace looked like for you. Imagine a, um, a milk bottle when they used to deliver milk. You've got a big opening at the top and it comes down into almost like a bell shape. That's what the furnaces looked like. There was an opening at the top, and that's where they would fuel this fire that had been started at the bottom. They would pour whatever they were pouring in to make the fire even hotter. And also at the top is where these soldiers were to put Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in. Well, the fire was so hot that the flames were kind of coming up out of the top of the furnace and killed those soldiers when they fell in. There also, um, before I go on, at the bottom of the furnace, there was another opening, and it was kind of on the side, and this was covered with a grate, and it was so that King Nebuchadnezzar and all his officials would be able to see in what was happening at the bottom of the furnace, but, but really even more than that, it was because once all the fire died down, they needed a way to sweep out the ashes, and so they would do that through this grate, and that's why the king was able to see what was happening. Because, remember, heat rises, so the flames are going to go up. They're not going to shoot out the side. Okay, picking up in verse 24. King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, O king. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like the son of God's. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and all the officials crowded around them. 
They saw the fire had not harmed their bodies, not a hair of their head was singed, their robes were not, robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation and language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other God can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. So what happens when the world around you is bowing and you're left standing? Number one, you're not alone. It may feel like you're alone, but God promises in his word that he will not leave us alone. Joshua 1.9 on your verse sheet. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be terrified, do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. You are not alone. Number two, what happens when you stand up and the world around you bows? You receive freedom. Because a faith tested is a faith that can be trusted. They went into the fire tied up. By the time they were at the bottom, they were walking around unbound and not alone. See, the thing is, is that there's freedom when we obey God. When we take him at his word and we follow him, it's no longer on our shoulders. God is the one who is sovereign, who takes care of that. So when, just like our illustration here that's on the cover of your notebook or up behind me, when it seems like the entire world is walking one direction and you're the lone shoe walking the other way, there is freedom when you walk in the path that God has laid out for you. And finally, what happens when you stand up and the world around you bows? God receives the glory. Verse 28, Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, he doesn't say praise to my God, but God still gets praise. See, just because it's somebody who isn't necessarily coming to a knowledge of of God as their Savior, as their whole trust, God still gets the glory. God does give credit saying this is the only God who can save in this way. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were able to experience an amazing miracle where God receives the glory. I don't want to miss out on that because I am too afraid to follow him. So what are you standing on? Are you standing on the promises of God? Psalm 40, verses 1 through 4. I waited patiently for the Lord. He turned to me and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the slimy pit, out of the mud and mire. He set my feet on a rock and gave me a firm place to stand. He put a new song in my heart, a hymn of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not look to the proud, to those who turn aside to false gods. What is God asking you to stand up for that will bring honor and glory to God? Is he asking you 
to help set the tone in your small groups so that the conversation doesn't go on the last vacation that you had, that it goes on God's word? Is God asking you to pursue personal holiness and that you are pursuing him rather than what the world says is success? What idol is God asking you to put down so that you can stand on the solid rock of Jesus Christ to give honor to him? It's hard. But our God is able. Take courage, ladies. El Shaddai is our God. And it's for his name alone that I will praise and worship. Let me pray. God, you are an awesome God. I don't have words to describe how amazing you are other than the name that you call yourself, El Shaddai. Father, give me courage to not bow before the idols of my own heart. Give each of these ladies courage because we are not alone. Courage to take a stand for you and to give you the glory in our lives even when things don't happen the way we want them to. You are good, you are holy, and you are faithful. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.